This evening I'd like to speak about a quality which, if cultivated wisely, has a tremendous power to enrich both our lives and our meditation. And it's the quality of wise intention. The story of uh, the Buddha's enlightenment, I think, is one of the most profound and inspiring stories in the Buddhist tradition. And the way that that story is told is that when the Buddha sat beneath the Bodhi tree on the eve of his awakening, that he entered into that time with an unshakable resolve to be present and to be still until he awakened to understanding what was true, until he understood what it meant to be free. And in the passing of that night, as the story tells, the Buddha was challenged by the forces of Mara, or the forces of delusion. And that Mara's challenge was really an attempt to turn Siddhartha away from his intention that Martha, Mara attempted, Martha, Mara attempted to divert the Buddha from this intention to understand freedom. And in his meeting with Mara, Mara appeared in a number of different forms that Mara appeared in the form of lust, in the form of greed, that Mara appeared in the form of doubt, in the form of anger, and the form of hatred. And the response of Siddhartha to these appearances of Mara was not to resist, not to throw up his hands in despair, not to become agitated or fearful, but simply to say, I know you, and to sit in the presence of Mara, to be still in the presence of Mara, with the intention to open wholeheartedly and to see clearly, but most importantly, to sit with that willingness to be present in the presence of Mara without resistance, without rejection, without agitation. And as this story goes, most Buddhist stories have a happy ending. And this clarity of intention had the power to dissolve the power of Mara. And as the story tells, that the poisonous arrows of Mara, when they met with the unshakable resolve and intention and commitment of Siddhartha, were transformed into flowers. This story of Siddhartha's awakening is a story of commitment and vision. It is a story of profound and clear intention. And it is the presence of these qualities that makes this story of the Buddha into a very timeless story, a universal story, a story that often inspires us. It is a story that's not only found in the Buddhist tradition, but it is an archetypal story that is found within all traditions, 
It is a story of a pilgrimage, of a quest, a story of making a sacred journey. Now, this story of Siddhartha's awakening would be a very different story if it was empty of these qualities of unshakable resolve, if it was missing the qualities of clear intention and vision. Think of what a different story then it might be if we listen to a story about this confused young man who was just wandering around in the forest, you know, just happened to come across this interesting tree and thought he might just sit down for a while and maybe see what happened, you know, and that he'd stay as long as it didn't get too hot, as long as the mosquitoes didn't bother him, or as long as his knees didn't hurt, and if any of this happened, he was just going to give up and go back to partying in the palace. (laughs) The entire Buddhist tradition, of course, would be rewritten. We would have beds in the meditation room. We would have waiters coming in with hot drinks in case we got thirsty. Everybody could bring a packed lunch in case we got hungry. Um, You know, we would all have our personal thermostats to adjust the heating to just the way we wanted it. We don't do any of those things in in this tradition. We don't cater in that way for our personal preferences or our personal agendas. Why don't we do it? Because we are all asked to come and sit in the presence of our own forces of Mara. We are asked in many ways to set aside our preferences, our likes and our dislikes. Have they helped us much in our lives? Have they actually led us to freedom? We are well familiar with these pathways. You know, they are not new to us. Most of our lives is actually spent can be spent rearranging our worlds according to our personal taste or attempting to do so through control and through avoidance and through manipulation, etc. So what a remarkable renunciation it is to come into this hall and to sit with clear intention. What a remarkable renunciation it is actually perhaps to recognize the limitations of those pathways we may be so familiar with and instead to come here and to explore new pathways, new ways of opening, which involve, very much involve, us sitting in the presence of our own forces of Mara. When we come into a retreat or come into a center such as this one, we are invited to look upon this time as entering into a sacred space. That in this time, we are all making our own pilgrimage. We are undertaking our own journey. We are walking in the footsteps of everybody else who has ever sat beneath a Bodhi tree. This does not imply in any way that our journey is going to be an exact replica of somebody else's journey or that it even should be. 
because we do come into this pilgrimage with our own stories and our own histories, our own aspirations, and our own forces of Mara, which may be somewhat unique to us. Yet within every pilgrimage, there are some parallel themes which are undeniable that we share with everyone else who has ever undertaken a journey or a sacred quest. We too, most likely, I think, did not end up here by accident. This retreat was not an accident in our lives. Most of us, as Narayan mentioned, have chosen to be here. And we have chosen to be here because of a heartfelt longing, an aspiration, an intuition that guides us to be here. Those intuitions do take different forms. But when we take away the different layers or names sometimes around them, then we see that probably we share in the longing to find the end of suffering and conflict and separation, that we probably share in the longing to find peace and understanding and freedom, that we probably share in the willingness to find the ways to let go through wisdom and compassion of the causes of suffering and sorrow and to nurture through wisdom and compassion the qualities of heart and mind that lead to freedom and to oneness. Now in the story of Siddhartha, he was visited by and assailed by the power and forces of Mara, the different obstructions and the different hindrances in the passing of a single night And these forces of Mara were dissolved by the power of his vision and clear intention. Now, this is obviously an ideal world. We may find that our hindrances may last a little longer than just one night. We may find that many of the hindrances or the obscurations that cloud our vision, that lead us to be lost in confusion or discontent, that they may very well be repeat visitors. They may return again and again. Yet I think it is also important for us to understand that these return visitors are not going to be dissolved by willpower, by resistance, or by agitation. They are going to be dissolved for us as they were for Siddhartha. By the power of our own clear intention and vision. Wise intention is what rescues us from being lost. Probably many of you in some of the reading you have done about this journey and this path have probably read many of the stories in the Zen and other Mahayana traditions 
about people having to um, wait, having to wait before being accepted by a teacher or into a path. And these stories are countless. You know, people who are left to shiver in the snow outside the temple gates or sent to the kitchen to undertake lowly tasks before being welcomed or introduced to the path of meditation. The message of these stories is that, you know, this time of waiting, this time of pausing, was not a time which where people were punished or even where they had to prove their worthiness. But rather these times of waiting were, are represented as times of reflection. Times of reflection. A time to reflect upon what it is that moves us and to motiv- motivates us to practice. These are very important questions. You know, this path is not magical. There's no technique that has any guarantees. In many ways, the path is simply a guide and a mirror. But what actually breathes life into the path is our motivation and our intention. These stories about this time of pausing, this is very much a living tradition. It's not something we so much practice at IMS, you may have noticed. No one has, you haven't seen people lingering outside the door, shivering in the snow. It's a very much a living tradition, though. When I first began to practice, or tried to begin to practice, um, in the Mahayana tradition, um, I was actually turned down. Um, sent away repeatedly. Um, I would go to my, uh, my future prospective teacher every day and ask to be accepted as a student, and he would just grunt and tell his head away and tell his translator to send me off, etc., etc. It was an interesting process to keep going back, to keep going back. Um, I actually really was not clear at that time about why I wanted to practice. I had very, very many romantic ideas about meditation, especially being in India. You get very prone to romantic ideas. And then one time, after a number of weeks of this process of rejection, which doesn't do a lot for your self-image, um, my, my teacher actually handed me a box of noodles, and that was my symbol of acceptance. <laughs> Needless to say, I had learned almost nothing from these weeks of being sent away because no sooner did I receive the box of noodles when I said to him, I want to learn Tantra. (laughs) Which was, of course, a definite invitation, you know, to be sent off for another, another year, actually, of reflection upon motivation. Now, this emphasis upon clear intention is really the forerunner at the heart of the whole meditative tradition. It is really at the heart of this whole tradition. In a retreat, we go through a different way of pausing. A retreat is, everything about it invites us to take a time to stop in our lives, to pause, to return home to ourselves. 
in coming into a retreat, we let go of many of our entanglements in the world. We let go, for this period of time, of a, a whole variety of life commitments to make this a time of simplicity and openness, a time that is dedicated to caring for just one moment at a time, to make this space a dedicated space. And it is a dedicated space. This space is devoted to one thing, and that is to being awake. That is all that this space is in the service of, to be present in ourselves, to be present in this moment. This intention that we slowly get in touch within within ourselves, to be awake and present, It is this intention that makes a retreat into a sacred time and that makes this space into a sacred space. I mean, there is nothing intrinsically sacred about sitting in a room with a Buddha statue. There is nothing intrinsically sacred about sitting on a cushion or walking slowly. Rather, these are all symbols to wake us up, to help us to reflect, to help us to question about what we are doing here, what we are doing in our lives. All moments, all time, and all places are flavored by the intention that we bring to them. The whole of our lives is flavored by the intentions we bring to them. Now, many times we come into a retreat just as we live our lives with some fairly generalized intentions. I mean, this is true in our lives. If you think about your life, you know, what are you looking for in your life? What is important for you in your life? What has meaning for you in your life? Well, most of us would probably say that, you know, what we are seeking for in our lives is happiness, is intimacy in our relationships is a sense of meaning in our work, a sense of vitality and creativity and peace and happiness. We bring often the same generalized intentions um, into our meditation. You know, most people come into meditation not, not looking for a pathway to more suffering or Uh, you know, an attempt to join a depressive community or any of those things. Most people come to meditation because they have these generalized intentions. You know, this is a pathway to peace, a pathway to understanding, a pathway to compassion. Sometimes our intentions are a little bit more specific. Sometimes we are looking for certain experiences Um, or looking for a way to happiness, a way to take care of ourselves. Sometimes we're looking for in meditation a way to get rid of qualities or experiences that are difficult for us. Now these more generalized sense of intentions serve to get us here. They serve to actually get us to bury and onto a meditation cushion. But when we actually arrive here, these generalized intentions aren't necessarily all that powerful. Just as they're not necessarily all that powerful in our lives. 
When we come into the immediacy of this situation, just as when we come into the immediacy of contact with another person in our lives, of how we do our work, when we come into the immediacy of this situation with how we sit and how we walk, how we are with ourselves, we are asked to call upon, not generalized intention, but the power very much of applied intention, a very clear and conscious and moment-to-moment applied and wise intention. This is, becomes more and more clear to us. We know that there are in such a variety of different ways of sitting on a cushion and so many different things that can happen when we sit on a cushion. You know, and we can go through the motions and appearance-wise or superficially, you know, we can have it down pat. You know, we've got the right uniform, fantastic posture. You know, we look good. I mean, other, you know, new yogis come in, they look at us, they say, now there is a yogi, you know. They know how to do it. You know, everything looks good. We know that that doesn't necessarily mean anything at all. You know, inwardly, we can be doing so many other things. You know, we can be lost in our fantasies. We can be, you know, playing every tape of hurt from our past. We can be, you know, going through our vacation brochures. There are countless things we can be doing as we sit on our cushion. Nobody knows. That's what's so fascinating about meditation. (laughs) Nobody knows. Nobody knows what you're doing. You know, and we don't have polygraph tests or anything like that, you know. Nobody has to go to confession. Nobody knows what you are doing except one person, and that's you. And that is where it's important. It doesn't matter, you know. It really doesn't make any difference to the person who's sitting beside you whether you choose to spend your time fantasizing or being lost. It's not going to make any difference to their lives. You know, they're not going to be infected by some sort of fantasy vibration that's spilling over and going to get them. It doesn't make any difference. What makes it, who it makes a difference to, of course, is us. This is our life we're talking about. This is our experience. Our quality of connection with this moment that we are speaking about. Sometimes we have the the kind of we entertain the sort of delusion that in order to actually come to a place of connectedness or come to a place of intimacy or come to a place of wisdom, that all we have to do is sit more. You know, as if that's somehow going to be a magical solution. It's not a bad idea. I'm not trying to discourage you. This is not a bad idea. You know, there are some golden rules for a retreat, you know. Think less, sleep less, eat less, and sit more. It's good rules for a retreat. But sitting more is not a guarantee. You know, Ajahn Chah once had a a student who came to him and said, you know, I'm not getting anywhere. I'm not making any progress, you know. I think I should just sit many more hours and sit through the night. And Ajahn Chah said, well, you know, I've seen chickens do that. (laughs) and never have I met an enlightened chicken. When we sit, we meet, of course, ourselves. That is who we meet. And we meet our shadows and our demons. We meet the forces of our own minds and hearts that create difficulty, that bring pain. 
Sometimes we sit with the shadows of negativity or dullness, the different places in ourselves that cause suffering in our lives. It is not easy. It is not easy. Yet we also see the inclination in also in ourselves, which is sometimes discouraging, to see the ways in which it is actually so easy to wander on and on in very familiar territory, thinking the thoughts we've thought a thousand times before, remembering the, the, the experiences we've remembered a hundred times before, reacting in the same ways of aversion or resistance or clinging that we've seen ourselves react in before. There is a great temptation within the familiarity of this territory. We see it is easy to become lost in our stories about past and present and future, to be pushed and pulled and sometimes swallowed by one mental state or one like or dislike or one story after another. And this is where we need the power of applied and clear intention. That it is like a guiding light. Intention is like a guiding light that shows us the way through the murkiness of confusion. The way that we approach this moment is what transforms it. When I was in India, some of you have heard me tell this story before, I did what many people do in India, which is you go and visit famous teachers and gurus. And I heard many marvelous stories about a great saint in the south of India called Pundiswami, and I decided to go and visit him. And the story of Pundiswami was that he'd been found buried beside a riverbed, and he'd been dug up by a farmer who found him alive, um, which meant in India that sushi would be translated, you know, not as a problem but as a sign of sainthood. So he was actually immediately became a saint and became surrounded by these wandering sadhus. And the way that Pundiswami lived his life is that he he sat on a trolley um, and he never moved. He never got off his trolley. And he sat there, and sometimes people would give him Cokes, and he would drink Cokes, and sometimes people would give him food, and he would eat food. And he, he never spoke. He never spoke. And he sat there for 25 years, which is a fairly remarkable thing in itself, one must admit. Um, and actually, he was so well known that they'd built a bus stop by his trolley, and they called it the Pundiswami bus stop. So, you know, if you were in South India and you went and caught a bus, you'd say, one ticket, please, to Pundiswami bus stop, and sure enough, it would drop you off beside this trolley. It was really neat. <laughs> and thousands of people came, and often people would come, and they would tell these stories about the way that Pundiswami had really changed their lives, even though he never spoke. And some people would say, well, you know, when I had my darshan with Pundiswami, that he spoke to me in my, you know, my native language in German or in Swedish or, you know, he showed me the way out of this difficulty I was in or he showed me what was true about myself. That was incredible stories. And some people would say, oh, he's just a fake. You know, there would be some Westerners who would come very strong psychological backgrounds and say, this guy's, you know, some sort of catatonic trance, you know, he's not some sort of 
serve sort of saint. And in a way, it really wasn't important. I mean, that was my discovery in visiting Pundiswami, that, that there was nothing to prove here. This guy obviously had nothing to prove. It really didn't matter at all whether he was a total saint or whether he was a total fake. That what happened for the people who came for that darshan, with this sense of really genuine openness, genuine openness, a really genuine receptivity and willingness to be touched, that that quality in itself was actually the miracle for many people, that they were touched, that they were transformed. And it didn't really matter whether, whether it was something that happened from Pundiswami or not, but it couldn't happen without that quality of receptivity and that tremendous openness and willingness to be touched. That sense of openness and that quality of receptivity, that willingness to be touched, is one of the qualities that makes meditation deeply meaningful that allows us to be touched in this experience because when we have that sense of openness, we don't crowd it and cloud it with expectations and ideas of what should be happening for us, what we should get rid of. We don't have really so much of an agenda, but we listen so well. We listen so well. And we allow ourselves to be surprised and we can be surprised by the moment when this moment is not overflowing with all of our ideas of how it should be. We can be deeply surprised because then we listen. And it seems to me that our capacity to deepen and to grow as a human being is very much linked to our capacity to be surprised. The Buddha spoke about two different areas of intention in meditation. And he kind of divided them in these two different compartments or dimensions almost. On one side, he put the intentions that arise often in our hearts and minds. And he spoke about what those intentions were. And he said, one of the intentions that often arises in our hearts and minds is the intention or the inclination towards craving, wanting, or grasping. <coughs> that that is one of the inclinations of the mind. To find and to hold on to the pleasant sensation, the pleasant thought, the pleasant experience, the pleasant idea, the pleasant moment, he said, another of the intentions or inclinations of the mind that frequently arises is the intention towards aversion and ill will, the intention towards harshness and cruelty, the intentions that include those inclinations of the mind towards rejection, towards dislike, towards judgment, towards pushing away. And he said of these intentions that they have shared characteristics. The intention towards craving, the intention towards aversion, the intention towards cruelty. 
or harshness, that they have shared characteristics. And the characteristics that they share is that they lead to suffering. They lead to the suffering of ourselves and the suffering of others. That another of the characteristics that they share is that these inclinations or intentions of the mind obstruct wisdom. Another is that they lead to conflict and to difficulty. And another is that they lead away from freedom. And on the other side, he talked about this other dimension of intention. Not magical, but intentions and inclinations of heart and mind that are fostered and nourished in our lives and in our practice. And he spoke of these intentions not as ideals, not as distant goals. This is very important. Not as destinations we're going to reach after we get good at the practice. But he spoke of these intentions as intentions which we should be encouraged to cultivate and to embody and to apply in each moment. So they're not ideals, but rather that they are ways of approaching this moment and every moment, ways of approaching our, ourselves. And he said these intentions that can be nourished and implied and embodied, one of them is the intention towards letting go, the intention towards renunciation. He said another of the intentions that there is wisdom in fostering and embodying is the intention towards loving-kindness, friendliness, and acceptance. And he said the third of the intentions that there is wisdom in cultivating and applying is the intention towards compassion. And he said that these intentions in our lives and in our meditation are intentions that lead towards the well-being and happiness of ourselves and others, that these intentions nourish wisdom and understanding, that they bring clarity, <clears throat> and that they lead to freedom. You will notice there's a whole number of inclinations and a whole number of intentions in there that the Buddha didn't mention. He didn't mention about cultivating the intention to dwell on things, to analyze things, to fix things or to make things perfect. Spoke about the intention towards letting go, the intention towards loving kindness, and the intention towards compassion. And these are, these are all that are needed. In speaking about intention, the Buddha went on to say that what we frequently think and dwell upon will become the inclination of our minds. That is so interesting. What we frequently think and dwell upon will become the inclination or the habit of our minds. That by frequently thinking and dwelling in a particular way, it is almost as if we wear a groove within our minds and hearts. That this becomes the most familiar and the most natural way of response for us. In other words, what we pay attention to shapes and flavors and forms our world, both inwardly and outwardly. And what we pay attention to, what we give attention to, is shaped and formed by our intention, by our intentions. 
So wise and compassionate attention is formed by wise and compassionate intention. Unwise attention is formed by unwise intention. And there's a story that illustrates this, a story of this farmer who lost his axe and he looked everywhere for it and he couldn't find it. And as he continued searching for this missing axe, his eyes happened to fall upon the son of his neighbor. And suddenly he had this thought. He probably took it. And the more he looked upon this boy, the more he felt that the boy looked like a thief. He seemed to walk like a thief. He acted like a thief. He was surely a thief. And then, of course, he found his axe. And in looking at his neighbor's son again, the child looked just like any other child. The inclinations of our mind, formed by what we think and dwell upon, become the grooves of our mind, and they shape and flavor our world. In our own experience, we can easily see the truth of this and actually how we can create these grooves very quickly or sometimes how the grooves that we create in the present become so powerful because they are very familiar grooves in the past. And again, you know, there's a very, obviously a very common analogy for this. Now, suppose there is someone who, in the silence of this retreat, you know, we decide that we really like this person. They're our ally. They're our friend. You know, we really think very highly of them. We've never spoken to them, but we think very highly of them. And one day we notice, maybe, um, that they, they look uncomfortable coming in the meditation. They look uncomfortable in their cushion. You know, we've been sitting beside them for days, and they've been so still. And suddenly they're kind of shuffling around, you know, and they're, they're restless, and they're agile, their bodies are moving. And of course, because we've had this inclination of friendliness and loving kindness, oh, we feel so concerned about them. You know, we want to bring them a hot water bottle. You know, we, we want to make sure they're all right. You know, we'd like to offer them our shawl. You know, is there anything we can do? We're so concerned about them. Our mind and world is shaped. Now, on the other side of us, there may be somebody, of course, an entirely different flavor. The person who we really haven't taken to on this retreat, you know. And now, again, we haven't spoken to them, but there's something about their hairdo or, you know, their shawl that we just haven't got along with for one reason or another. <laughs> and again, they may have been really still also, you know, but again, they come in the same day. Maybe they're shuffling around on their cushion. They're restless and they're agitated. Are we concerned? You know, do we want to offer them a hot water bottle? Do we want to give them a heating pad? No. In our minds, we're saying, you schmuck, why don't you sit still, you know? <laughs> what are you doing disturbing me? Same scenario, different inclination of mind. Different inclination of mind, different intention, different quality of life. Now, sometimes, of course, these grooves of the moment have really been shaped also by grooves of the past. But we need to see on a moment-to-moment level that what we give attention to shapes our world, that the inclination of our minds shapes our perception of reality. I read this wonderful phrase in Newsweek yesterday. It's about being called reality-challenged. And that's so good. You know, that's like, that's another word for delusion. We're reality challenged. We're, it's not the reality, it's not there, we're just having trouble seeing it. And 
So sometimes we are a little bit reality challenged about the nature of our perceptions because they're so convincing. We think it's true. Isn't that interesting? We think it's true. There are people who think this new comet is a spaceship coming to Earth. They're reality challenged, we think. (laughs) But we can see that sometimes it's convincing. Our moment-to-moment inclinations of mind are convincing simply because they have this long history. You know, we've been here before. And that gives them this extra weight of power of conviction. You know, we see that kind of positivity coming up and concern. You know, and even though we may see that it's unasked for, unneeded, that it is projection, that it is deluded, still there's a, you know, we can say, well, you know, I come from this long line of concerned people. You know, I've always, my family's always been in service. You know, my, my mother was a caregiver. My grandmother was a caregiver. Of course I'm going to be concerned. What happens with the person on the other side of us, you know? There we tap into another groove. You know, we can say, well, I come from a long lineage of negative people. You know, always looking for what's wrong, always looking for faults, you know? And we can see these inclinations of the mind so quickly, often... You know, we see it in other people better than we see it in ourselves, unfortunately. You know, how many of us in our lives, you know, we, we, you know, you've met the eternal optimist, you know, you go, you're half dead with illness, you know, and they're talking to you about silver linings in every cloud, you know. You know, you, you would like a little empathy, but now you've got to listen to this silver linings business. You know, you go to someone else, you know, you have a hiccup and they give you forecasts of cancer, you know something really wrong there. We meet this so much in our world. We meet it in ourselves. Now, in meditation, as we deepen in clarity and understanding, we are not attempting necessarily to negate these grooves, but we are actually cultivating different inclinations of mind and heart. You know, there is an effort and a direction in this path which is towards wisdom, compassion, and loving-kindness, and letting go. And we are cultivating these inclinations within our minds and hearts every time we do this practice. This is not an ideal. It is changing the shape of our hearts. It's changing the shape of our hearts. What happens in meditation is that we are moving from a place of choicelessness to a place of choice another dimension of choicelessness altogether. Very often in our lives we feel this, this, the powerlessness of choicelessness. We feel like we get to get pushed and pulled and provoked by our conditioning. We feel sometimes that you know we just get overwhelmed and swamped by our reactions or our mind states or our likes and our dislikes and by the inc- conditioned inclinations of our mind. So what are we doing in meditation? Instead of feeling so compelled to give weight to all of this conditioning, to all of these inclinations of mind, such as the inclination towards judgment or resistance or aversion, what we are doing in practice is that we are learning to say, I know you. We're learning to say, I know you. We're learning to bring, through mindfulness, the clarity of being able to see something just as it is. 
not mine, not me, just as it is. So we're learning actually to cease giving permission to conditioning. We're learning to cease to give conditioning to pow the power of these conditioned inclinations of the mind by pausing, by mindfulness. We are introducing mindfulness, which allows us to see more clearly. Now, as we introduce that sense of mindfulness, that pausing of seeing and knowing something as it is, there's a sense of possibility that begins to emerge. There's a sense of choice that begins to emerge. We see actually that we are not obliged simply to follow in the familiar pathways of conditioning, but actually there may be some choices. We may see, you know, like when judgment arises, we may see the possibility of letting go. We may see the possibility of bringing loving kindness. We may see the possibility of bringing compassion. We may see the possibility of bringing wise intention. Sometimes we see patterns of, of disconnection or patterns of, of fantasy or patterns of aversion that arise. You know we've all seen those patterns arise here perhaps today. And we can see actually how powerful mindfulness is. Because if, instead of fleeing blindly or being pushed blindly by these patterns, we can stay with them. And there is the possibility of seeing that maybe there is a wiser way to be in this moment. Maybe there is a way to be in this moment that is actually not leading to suffering, that is not obstructing wisdom, and that is not leading away from freedom. But maybe there is a way to be in this moment that is leading towards happiness, leading towards understanding, and leading towards freedom. So we begin to see that perhaps there are those choices. This is a marvelous revelation. It is a wonderful revelation, and it is also a phase in this practice. The shape of our minds and hearts change as we follow the path of wise intention. We see how suffering is caused and how it can end by following the pathways of wise intention. Is this the moment to let go? Is this the moment that needs more loving kindness? Is this the moment for compassion? As that skillfulness and art of being able to pause and really exercise those choices really deepens and begins to emerge within ourselves, there is another phase that we go into, which is a whole other dimension of choicelessness. Because when we see so clearly and so profoundly what causes suffering, what leads to disconnection, what leads to separation, we see that so deeply that that wisdom element is so, <clears throat> so alive within ourselves that it's not a question of making choices anymore. That it becomes impossible for us to act in a way or to be guided by that which brings suffering which brings pain or disconnection. It's almost like it becomes impossible to act against our true nature and that we are guided by wisdom. This quality of wise intention is something to give great attention to in our practice. In those moments when we feel pushed, 
in those moments when we feel like we're reacting blindly, in those moments when we feel like we're filled with resistance or aversion or lost in some fantasy, they are major clues for us. <clears throat> those are moments that are asking us to pause and to say, what is the intention in this moment that would lead to happiness, to understanding, and to freedom? Is there something I need to let go of? Is there a change of approach that is needed? Is there a greater loving kindness or a greater compassion that is needed in this moment? It is also helpful, you know, when you come into a sitting, when you leave a sitting, when you enter into a walking meditation, to reflect on that for a moment. What is this time in the service of? What is this time dedicated to? What am I committed to in this sitting? Sometimes in cultivating that awareness, which is not thinking, a very bare level of inquiry, of questioning, brings us a greater sense of clarity of where we are in that moment and where we are going. What we are seeking to cultivate and to deepen in, what we are seeking to let go of. To not be automatic in our meditation, to not be mechanical. What is this time in the service of? Maybe we become a little bit closer to ourselves, to what actually is guiding us. We are learning both to welcome all things and to hold within ourselves that sense of vision. As I spoke about yesterday evening, those two aspects of a pilgrimage, that there is acceptance and awareness and there is direction and vision. And they go together. And to really ensure that our direction and vision is guided by wise intention. Guided by wise intention. And to appreciate what a difference that quality of cultivating wise intention can make in every sitting and in every walking. Are we committed to letting go? Are we committed to loving kindness? Are we committed to compassion? If we take a couple of moments quietly together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.